0: Hello and welcome to A Living Loss. I'm Julia Samuel. It's an absolute honor for me to introduce today's guest to you all. She is someone I've admired for many years and whose experiences are truly unbelievable. Dr. Edith Eager, Holocaust survivor, psychologist and author of two books, The Choice and The Gift, both of which I've taken so many lessons from. Our conversation was inspiring and at times devastating. She's been through so much in her life and I am actually in total awe of her resilience and her strength. We chatted about the racism she's experienced all the way through her life, how important it is to learn to forgive even when it seems like the hardest thing to do and why perspective can change everything. A quick disclaimer before we start, I talk about a client of mine's experience in this episode and of course I had her permission to discuss this situation before I spoke to Edith. So it's my pleasure to share my conversation with Dr. Edith Eager on a living loss. Honestly, you've been an enormous inspiration to me um, since I read your first book and this marvellous second book, The Gift. And I, I use you in my work when people are suffering your ideas. And, you know, having been a Holocaust survivor, you are the embodiment of someone who's thrived and you've lived this extraordinary life um, and witnessed unspeakable hate and unimaginable suffering, but somehow you find a way of turning these into these experiences into love and reaching to all of us in the world to heal, to convert such a devastating loss into, into a gift so that we can have choices in how we respond to our devastating experiences. And it feels such an extraordinary gift that you had the strength and... do that and I suppose one of my so this podcast is about living loss rather than than loss from death so it's about our experiences life in life that you write a lot about about when our expectations are disappointed when we are divorced or we lose our job or we have a terrible injury so they're the experiences of grief but not from death um and one of the things that really strikes me about what you write about and what I've heard you talk about is that we can choose how we respond. That suffering is part of life, but it is what we do with that suffering that um kind of influences the outcome of our life. And I wanted to kind of I wanted you to talk about that and tell me about that. This is so wonderful
1: the way you are really putting it, uh, that it's not what we feel is what we do. And, uh, and suffering is feelings. And without suffering, we just go through the motions in life. We get up, we have breakfast, we go to work, we come back, go to sleep, you know, and we go over and over again. But uh, suffering, I can tell you, as a survivor to another that suffering makes you stronger because you have one word that we can concentrate today is resilience, that our ancestors were suffering as well. In fact, they were treated not as good as women are now and what a wonderful wonderful happening is today that they didn't give up and we carry, we carry, we carry that blood because it's easier to die than to live.
0: And I remember in, in the gift, there was a moment when you were, after the choice, you were very ill in hospital. Yes. And you had this terrible, um, a uh, machine down your throat yes and you describe that own, your own moment of i can't do this i i want to die i was
1: intubated and they put this thing in my mouth and i wanted to to take it out so they took my hands and and they locked it in awful so i couldn't touch anything it was awful and uh, and the doctor one day said to me, I'm going to take it out tomorrow. And so I was so excited and I was ready. And he comes in and a minute later he says, you know, Edie, I want to wait another day. Oh. But I, da- I don't tell the doctor, I don't know if I have another day. I used up everything I could. I thought I could and that night I said to myself, I did it in Auschwitz, I can do it here. So you never give up, you never give up because, uh, because you have a choice to pay attention to what you lost or what is still here And when we were completely shaven in Auschwitz, my sister Magda asked me, how do I look? And I had a choice then, as you have a choice now, whether you pay attention to what you lost or what is still here. And instead of telling Magda how she'll really look in her nakedness and bald head, I told her, Magda, you have beautiful eyes, and I didn't see it, and you had your head all over the place. Uh. So we do have a choice to be, you and I are not shrinks, we are stretched. That's a lovely way of saying (laughs) it. Don't call me shrink, call me stretch. I want to stretch your comfort zone, your possibilities and the uh, resilience.
0: And as I'm looking at you, Edie, you know, I'm aware of you saying, as you were lying in a hospital bed, I could survive Auschwitz, so I can survive this. And then I think, well, I don't know if I could have survived Auschwitz. Has Edie got something I haven't got? How do I know that I can have that resilience? You talk about to turn my attention from the dark and wanting to die to the light and having hope? Is it just by putting the words in my mouth or do I have to have an extra edism? Do I have to have something that you've got that I haven't got to enable me to have that resilience? Well, the other one that my
1: daughter calls (laughs) Edeism, that the opposite of depression is expression. Because what comes out of your body doesn't make you ill. So when I came to America and you asked me who I was, I would say, who do you want me to be? Because I wanted to be you. I wanted to be a Yankee Doodle dandy. <laughs> and I went completely underground because I didn't want you to feel sorry for me.
0: You didn't want to be
1: a victim. I don't ever, ever adhere to victimization, I I don't forget, I don't overcome, I come to terms with it, I say that over and over again, because uh, it's very good to see that in the darkness there are a lot of untapped potential. Mm.
0: And is it daring to trust? Is it for anyone that it, any one of us, if we dare to trust, to have hope, and then we can turn from being a victim to being a survivor who has resilience, who has hope, who changes their mindset to something optimistic and living rather than kind of oppressed and. Um, yes, it, yeah, I I say today that
1: what we think, we create.
0: That's interesting,
1: yeah. And that was really totally depending on the attitude. In the attitude and my attitude at the age of 16, because I was in love, Mm. that if I survive today, then tomorrow I'm going to be my boyfriend. That's how that's how and today we know that your self-dialogue can change your body chemistry the way you get up in the morning and you really plan your day that in the evening you're going to be very satisfied when you are in your dead bed you're going to be grateful not what the world has given you but in what way you you And only you, because there'll never be another you. You are unique, you're one of a kind, uh, and you celebrate. I know that you and I are going to celebrate because we committed ourselves to a profession of changing tragedy into some kind of opportunity to grow from and to survive.
0: And I I need to ask you one of the key questions, but I just, as you're saying that, I, I kind of feel that in doing the job we both do, and I sort of look up to you as an icon, and I'm still a kind of, um, you know, worker, Is is that I feel like I receive much more from being able to have these relationships with people, of being able to understand them and work with them, than I ever give them. I feel like we get so much from being able to do this job, from being able to make a difference that gives us meaning and purpose in a way that feels very... You know, I was, I was extremely
1: sad January 6th, when people attacked the capital and wearing shorts, shirts that Auschwitz, six million was not enough. Oh, Edith,
0: that's Eight. terrible.
1: Full of hate, the white supremacy group are
0: are following a lie. Yeah. Yeah. That was devastating to watch that after all you've been through, all you've witnessed, and when you yes, say yes, I, say that love is the thing. Love <laughs> is how we live together. I'd like to tell you that.
1: You know, people don't come to me, they're sent to me. And I had many, many years ago uh, a 14 year old young boy who was part of a white supremacy group uh, from Texas. And the guy was called David Koresh. You can look him up because mm. the, and the government bombed him uh, and mm. they all died. Um, but he was he was one of the worshippers of that person, and Gosh. he got up in my office, looked at me, and said, "America has to be white again, and I'm gonna kill all the Jews, all the black people, all the all the Mexicans, all the chinkos, and you know." So I am really differentiating between reacting or responding because if I would have reacted, Um, see when you react, you don't think actually, okay? You punch. I tell people to, yes, uh, see the movie called The Karate Kid because the best power is the brain power. So if I would have reacted, I would have dragged him to the corner and I would have stepped on him and I would have told him, how dare you talk like that because my mother went to the gas chamber. But since I operate on the idea that God sends people my way, they don't come to me, they're sent to me. And the most obnoxious person is my best teacher. And so I asked, why do you send me this guy? And God said to me, find the bigot in you. And I said, it's impossible. It's impossible. I came to America penniless. I worked in a factory in 1949, and I went to the bathroom. And one of them said, well, wow. after Nazi Germany, after communist so, Russia, yeah. and look what I find, racism, prejudice, means to prejudge, so I gathered the black women, I joined the NASCP, and I was lucky to march with Martin Luther King in 1963. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm saying love is not what you feel, is what you do.
0: Wow. So you're saying that in that moment, you could have just reacted and stomped on him. But you took a space and a breath and recognised that what is most painful is often what teaches us most. And that if we allow ourselves to learn and pause, then we can learn from someone who has such terrible views like him. So I, I... I created,
1: as you and I know, that we create an atmosphere for our patients that they can have the permission to feel any feelings without the fear of being judged. So I looked at him as lovingly as I could, and I said, please tell me more. Because last time. T-I-M-E, four-letter word. T-I-M-E.
0: Yes. And you that and I, time.
1: if we talk to someone ourselves and to really how we can, many times just really be compassionate listeners. And, uh, and I'm hoping that you also organize, maybe in London, that people can just go in, into a place where someone is there. Listening to you.
0: Yeah, yeah, there are there are places called listening places actually. And there's and just say quite tell a lot of projects. More. Yeah, yeah, tell me more. I think if we all listen more rather than talk so much, the world would be a better place, no? <laughs> we talk too much. Yeah. <laughs> too many opinions. Can I ask you one of I've got two big questions I need to ask you. And so I could easily be sidetracked by you because you're so fascinating and have such incredible wisdom. But the idea of this podcast is living losses. So these are the losses that are like deaths, but they're not deaths. They're like a loss from divorce or losing your job or moving country. Um, and I was wondering if you thought in terms of living losses, do you remember the first time you had a living loss? Um if you kind of cast your memory back, say even before Auschwitz, is there a living loss that you can recall where you felt it could be your teddy bear or not passing I, an exam? Or...
1: I was a very talented gymnast and I was going to really prepare for the Olympics someday. And my trainer told me that I have to train a Gentile because i'm jewish and i don't qualify
0: oh my goodness that you couldn't be you'd have to change you'll have to hide your jewish identity exactly exactly ah.
1: exactly and i i i uh, that was the biggest 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 uh, uh realization that i who who at least five, six hours a day is practicing, practicing. I never went to bed unless I did the split and release from all kinds of ways. And I now have to train someone else. I, that was an amazing, I don't want to tell you it was worse than Auschwitz but I'm telling you that I was so heartbroken,
0: yeah.
1: I was even thinking of suicide, but thank God I didn't act upon it. No. It's easier to die than to live, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Many young people do that. Sometimes they do that in unison, they do it together. I'm doing everything, and you are, I'm sure, doing everything in your power to show that there is another way. Yeah. The lifestyle or the death style, it's up to you which one you choose. I just want to say that people who get a the divorce, they blame each other, and only children blame. Yeah.
0: But
1: while you blame, you're still a child. Yes, yeah. You got to take responsibility With
0: freedom. Yeah. Because as you were talking about um, the sort of imposition of of all the anti-Semitism that you endured at such a young age, I could see the sadness still living in you sort of 80 years later. And that's one of the big messages I got from your book is that you're not talking about that we forget what happened or that the sadness doesn't stay in our bodies was I understood you is that we have to find ways of expressing it and voicing it. But it lives in us, but also it shapes us to then be different the next time something happens. So, I mean, I wonder if from that experience so young, did it shape you for other experiences that you then had to face because you were so heartbreaking, but you, you thought of dying, but you decided to live, did that kind of build a foundation or...? I think it was...
1: a time when I decided to be for something rather than against something. I am for life, I'm for love, I'm for uh, communication that will... Uh, fortunately bring us together so we can empower each other with our differences, that you can be you and I can be I, but together we're going to be much stronger. And Auschwitz was an opportunity to discover that all we had was each other then and all we have is each other now, you see. I love, I love Mr. Higgins. By God,
0: she's got it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a very good English accent you did. I'm very yeah, impressed. You've got it. My <laughs> God, you got
1: it. Yes, we got it. And we women are women of strength. Not, we, we don't compete. We don't want to dominate, but we want to cooperate. Yeah and forming a human family so we can finally survive.
0: And it feels like that being for something and coming together and connecting, holding our differences and allowing differences and still kind of linking arms to to build a better life together could not be more important now in a, you know, from the devastation from politics in the last years, but also this pandemic here, you know, the atomized life and the kind of fight to be different like the demonstration on the 6th of January. It feels like I want you to be standing on the steps of the Senate House, shouting your message to the world and the world to hear your message so that we pay attention to you because you are saying the things that we need to listen to, Edie. I see what I
1: lived and... I appreciate the i q what makes us survivors is the emotional i q, and that 's why people ask me to write a book after the choice that is practical
0: it is all the the twelve lessons of of you know resolving grief and forgiveness and are uh, fantastic lessons. I tell you, I do have. A question though, it took you till 90 to write your first book, Edie, and you had a lot to say for a long time. What took you so long?
1: Well, people would ask me to write a book and I would say I have nothing to say until... (laughs) Oh, my God! Exactly. (laughs) Years and years until Philip Zimbardo, who wrote the foreword, yeah. me that survivors who are famous today are all men and we need a female ah. that did it, that
0: did it. You're for women. You're a real feminist Edith, aren't you? I,
1: I am, I am for women and men and everybody who are put people in this world because We can really empower each other. And that's what you discover in Auschwitz, that the closer you come to the darkness, the more you realize that this is temporary. See, we can be disappointed, but don't get discouraged. We can be angry, but don't allow it to lead to resentment. So when people blame, I know I'm talking to a child. I know someone who's still blaming that that in America, they were cheating and the president stole away the votes and many millions of people believe that. And you have to read Plato. And Plato says that you have to think of a lie, and it has to be a big, big, big one, and then you repeat it, repeat it. So our biggest enemy is ignorance. People don't question authority. You have to question authority, because the emperor has no clothes on and doesn't even wear shorts. And that's very important for people to really question authority. so I love to go to school and I put on a board, I can't. And then I take the eraser, I take the apostrophe and the T, I can. Why? Because I think I can. And that's what my mother told me in a cattle car. She said, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. Just remember. No one can take away from you what you put in your own mind.
0: Isn't that amazing that she still lives on in you in those words, 80 years after she died, that she, she has, she's died, her body has died, but the memory of her, I can see as you remember your mum, the love you felt for her in that message is still so alive in you all these decades later. That's why... The theory that I have developed
1: is about, it's about exactly what my mother told me because everything was taken away from me and I had my mind and I had my sister. And my sister is alive and well. Is she? Magda, she's still alive. Magda was a hundred years old, but she'll tell you that she's 99. I don't know why. <laughs> now go figure that one out.
0: She's lying about her age at ninety-nine. I'd be proud to be a hundred. That is so funny. Well,
1: well, that was many
0: years ago when she came to America. I think
1: she was asked how old she is, and she cut down one year. I think I think Hungarian women
0: do that. They want yeah. to be like Raja Gabor, yes. <laughs> I don't think by any means it's only Hungarian women. I think it's a lot of women. So, Edie, my, my other big question is that, I mean, your first living loss was big. So as you scan back at your life, has there been a biggest living loss that, that has kind of shaped you and influenced you? And, and what would that be?
1: Um, what happened that when the communists took over, my husband was working in a business that was there for a hundred years and they confiscated the business and they put my husband in jail. I am a survivor. I don't say, why me? I say, what now? I took my big diamond ring, I went to the jail, I confiscated. Yes, uh, uh, whatever I did, I gave the big diamond ring to the warden and we fled overnight. And wow. we came a, came to Vienna and the following day we were supposed to follow a train going to Israel, where we put all our belongings, that my husband was going to open up a factory and I had clothes for my little girl for five years. And I told my husband, because my friend told me not to come to Israel, because people were living in tents on the desert. So I told my husband, That he can go to Israel and I'm taking my daughter to America and that's exactly what happened he went out and he heard his name to join us to go to Israel and he came back and we came to America that was in 1949 Yeah, that was an amazing time because uh, we came to America
0: penniless. With nothing and having been through so much trauma with with your daughter and you worked in a factory.
1: I was interested in what is the best interest of my child who was one and a half years old. I didn't matter, my child did. Thank God we came to America. And if you're a child of an immigrant, your child teaches you how to be, how to speak English, how to eat peanut butter, how to eat tuna fish, things I never heard of ever in Hungary or Czechoslovakia. And then your little girl becomes parentized and that's why I ask when did your childhood end and that is a question I know that many children had to be parents to the parents maybe an alcoholic father and mother would ask you to go to the bar and pick up dad or Mother was still wearing her pajamas in the afternoon because she had to have dark, dark room because of her chronic migraine headache. I think it's very important to take time out now. Now, now is time out to take stock of your life and say next and how you're going to not go back but to have a new beginning. That you give birth to the you, your genuine self. You claim that. And for that, I needed to go back to Auschwitz. And I asked my sister to join me. And she told me I am an idiot and a masochist. So you see, we went through the same experience, different responses.
0: And she never went back.
1: No, she didn't want to hear about it. And then I started to work with PTSD and I had two paraplegics coming from Vietnam and one of them was blaming and screaming and and why me? And the other one said to me, I quote, hey doc, I'm sitting in a wheelchair and you know what? I can see my children's eyes much closer and I can see, I can see ah, my children closer and flowers much closer and I am wearing a white coat that says, Dr. Eager, Department of Psychiatry and I feel like a biggest imposter. And that's when I decided I cannot take them further. You can understand that because you're my colleague. I cannot take them further than I have gone myself. And that's when I decided to go back to Auschwitz. And that's the work I do now. We revisit the places where you've been. We relive that experience. But you go through the valley of the shadow of death. I, you don't camp there. You don't get stuck there. I don't live in Auschwitz. I call it my cherished wound.
0: You talk about you, Magda, and you, and you had your own. Both were in Auschwitz for the same amount of time, and she said you were mad not to go back. To go back, and you went back, and you faced the terrors and the fear, and I guess your body relived them. Can you explain to me why you think we should do that? Why we need to face trauma rather than build a wall around it? And what's happened to Magda? Is she very different to you in the fact that she didn't? I think Magda decided
1: that that was then and she has no time to go backwards. And I think that she, made a decision. It doesn't mean that I'm right and she's wrong or no. I do it my way and you do it your way. So to me, it was the most positive thing I ever did that I didn't run anymore or fight anything. I just went back to that lion's den and looked at the lion in her face. And I couldn't have done that in a therapist's office.
0: No, you had to be there. And what I, what I get from what you're saying is that if we, the things we do to avoid the terror and the trauma are often the things that keep us imprisoned in our mind, that keep us on alert, that stop us taking pleasure in life and feeling calm enough and safe enough to fully kind of love and release ourselves into living, that we're still living a half-life. But when you allow yourself to feel the pain and face it and find ways of expressing it, and maybe Magda find completely different ways to you that there isn't a right or a wrong way of doing this. But that's when we heal. We don't forget and move on, but we remember, but live and love again. And that we find a way of really kind of moving in life, um, with, the, like your cher- with your cherished wound, and I'm sure still when you hear ambulances, there's a, there's a shudder that goes through you or marching feet because that, to some extent, never goes. But still you're choosing to love your children, to love your grandchildren, to have fun, to look gorgeous at 93, to, ha- to write, <laughs> write books. It's like that is what really living is. What is living is that
1: you're not the hostage or the prisoner of the past. Yeah, that's a brilliant one. I live in hate. I would still be a prisoner. So why give Hitler another inch or the past another inch? <laughs> yes. Yet I ask you to find the Nazi in you. Find the Hitler in you who doesn't give yourself enough credit when you get up in the morning, that you say, I love me. And that's when the Jewish boy called Jesus told us, love thy neighbor as thyself. Didn't say, love thy neighbor better than yourself.
0: Yes, I love your wisdom, Edie. We forget as thyself and we think of loving ourselves in the christian um tradition as being selfish and um narcissistic when actually in order to be able to love others we have to love ourselves we have to look in the mirror and enjoy and believe in what we're seeing not in a egotistical way but in a way that gives us um confidence to be able to be of value to reach and love somebody else. Because you see,
1: Jesus uh, became a prophet and he knew how to listen compassionately. Remember Zacharias uh, and ran from Jesus and, and Jesus followed him up the tree and invited him to dinner. He knew how to speak to people but the, the best thing I like about him, that he told us to turn the other cheek. So Einstein said that some people go back and they do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Different results, that's the definition of madness. I think Jesus said, what I like to say, look at the same thing from a different perspective.
0: Turn it around, look at it from a different
1: view. When I turn my cheek, I look at things from a different perspective. I give you Auschwitz as an opportunity, for an opportunity to discover my inner strength, to look at life from inside out rather than waiting for someone to make me happy. People who were waiting, they died. They didn't make it. It's terrible.
0: Can I I ask you about your children, Edie? Your fabulous children, um, Audrey, Marianne, and John. There are two aspects that I'm... If yeah, I mean, obviously you may not want to answer. Is that have they experienced transgenerational trauma? Given that you didn't do your trauma work until you were in your forties, or have what what's what's that been their experience? We well,
1: are the firstborn child. I got pregnant.
0: Amazing, you got pregnant by the way, after being starved.
1: I'm going to the doctor, and he said you're not healthy enough to have another uh, uh, thing right now because you have to recover and, and I'm going to schedule an abortion. <gasps> no. And he came over that night to the house, trying to convince me, and I'm a survivor. You are. I say, what now? And I said, sir, I choose to give life good night. And my late husband followed the doctor, apologizing that his wife doesn't know how to talk to a doctor appropriately. Um, my, my daughter, Marianne, is a brilliant clinical psychologist and a consultant in sports psychology with the, F, uh, with the New York um, people and she's married to a Nobel Prize winner Robert Engel who goes to England a lot to Oxford to lecture and uh, he got the Nobel Prize in 2003 in economics and then Audrey we were very poor and Audrey kept um waiting and Marianne kept saying I gotta have a sister. Everybody has a sister. So I decided if I pay for everything and I drove myself to the hospital in 1954, Audrey was born. Oh, okay. Audrey Audrey is a life coach right now. She is working, actually, a guy in Switzerland whose grandfather was a Nazi, and- uh, and, um, Gosh, that must press a few buttons. She she is the most practical um, person, and after two girls, my son John was born, and my husband was very, very happy because carrying the eager name. But what happened that my son didn't develop like my girls did. He didn't sit up, he didn't stand, he didn't walk. And when he was four years old in 1960, I was told by five doctors in Texas that my son is going to school for retarded children we don't use that term anymore no so means. i went to johns hopkins in baltimore and a beautiful a beautiful christian man i call christian someone who is christ-like yeah. and not too many a of good them. man not too many no, a good one yeah yes, a good one and told me that my son is not retarded that i it's gonna be what I make of him and send me home and told me my son needs occupational therapy, speech therapy. And my son John graduated as a top 10 student from the University of Texas.
0: I want to clap and cheer. Yeah. What an amazing,
1: Isn't
0: it? amazing. Don't give up, never give up, get a second
1: opinion. And my son John goes to Washington and fights for the disabled. He's blind, he's doing everything in his power. So the city has places with people who can now communicate from buses and something that he's really my hero. And then he says to people, besides, my mother is a survivor. <laughs> and so here I am. He is my hero, my son, John.
0: How do they cope with being um, a sort of iconic woman's child? Do they have, they particularly in the last few years, where really you've received the recognition you've deserved for decades, but have they found that, how have they f- responded to your... Great success?
1: I think my job is to accept that I was chosen not only to survive but to guide others. And I like the guidance. And some people call me a midwife, a spiritual midwife. I like that too. That you I give to, to the you. To the you, the one of our kind, you. There'll never ever be another you. And I think that really calls for celebration. That you get up in the morning and uh and um you see so for me to be famous uh I wanna say me, little old me <laughs> yeah. you know yes. ninety-three and I'm writing exactly. with my daughter and recipe. But I
0: hear your answer that with with humility that you that somehow you kind of as much as you accepted the suffering you had to face and and pain that you endured and the brutality of it, you also accept now that you've found a place in your life where where you want to where people want to listen to you and that you're honored and you accept both with each with equal um, respect I guess. You know
1: I don't uh, live in a past. But thank God I don't forget it. So what is important now also that Let me tell you, I got a call the other day from London, and it's a rabbi, a female rabbi in a congregation that is a hundred-some years old, and she wants to bring me to London. So maybe we can work out something that if and when we can travel, I would come to London and Speak at the temple and speak wherever I go, because once I'm there, I I want to be used yes. up. I like to be used up.
0: Well, I I mean it would be the greatest joy for me if you came to London and I could actually meet you, or if I came to La Jolla, if I could ever travel. If we when we travel, can I ask you just two two more questions? They're sort of slightly COVID-related questions. Um, so I was speaking to a a client yesterday whose um husband died um of covid and it, it was very sudden he he did have an underlying condition but he was 65 he was a young man in my terms a young man um and she has suspended grief because of the shock because she couldn't go into the hospital and see him and say goodbye because um, she did have a funeral, but it was with five people. And she she never kissed him goodbye or saw his body. So at one level, she, in her head, knows he's died, but she doesn't believe it, so she's kind of in in limbo. And also, she has a, a real fear of the unlock, so... We've had a very successful vaccine programme here. We now have dates um, where we'll be opening up and people will be able to be going to restaurants and playing sports. And so for her, she's in this kind of very tangled position where she hasn't been able to say goodbye. She hasn't grieved properly. She's one of 125,000 of those bereaved by COVID. And yet life is gonna move on, and she feels that they are gonna sort of say, "Well, we've had a difficult time, but she's had a devastating time and this idea of hierarchy of grief, but also do you have you any advice for me of how to work with her oh how, how long they've known
1: each other?
0: they've been married um twenty eight years okay, so Again, looking
1: at it from a different perspective. So if she can be grateful that God sent this spirit her way for 28 years. Yeah. You see, it's how you look at it. 28 years that spirit was sent to her and now that spirit went home
0: and to and to hold both maybe that she can feel the sadness and the loss but also hold the gratitude for the love and the time they had
1: yeah if she can give herself permission that's a good word. Yes, this is good Go word. to the cemetery was he Buried or was he cremated?
0: He was cremated. She's got the ashes at home. Okay. Then to realize that that
1: spirit was sent to her for 28 years, I am sure he would wink and he would be Mr. Higgins, to say, because that's the biggest gift she can give to her husband, that he didn't leave a cripple here, you see?
0: Yeah, that she finds a way of living.
1: You see? she's suffering, you can get addicted to that. So maybe, maybe if she's invited to a birthday party or a wedding or something, she's not going because she thinks that she's Mm. cheating on him, you know, her her mind. Feel guilty, caught in that prison of guilt. Guilty, exactly, guilty. It's just, you know, uh, what you lost or what is still left. And midlife, my experience is with patients, that they're afraid to be alone. Mm. But if you're afraid to be alone, and don't want to be alone. Why should I want to be with you? So I don't ask her to go out and date, but I do ask her to have that cherished wound Mm -hmm. and know that life is difficult. There is no guarantee. And you cannot really be free until you go through the rage.
0: Well, rage becomes depression, doesn't it? When people turn the the rage inwards, it becomes depression and it turns against them. So they need to find a way of expressing it that releases them from it. it's, It's not a good situation. You can
1: make the bad situation worse or you can make the bad situation better. Don't try to forget it, run from it, fight it. I was here yesterday with my Hungarian friend and she brought me a Hungarian version of the gift um, that, uh, that is really a gift, um, to have the gift. And so I'm so happy now that there you are, you are holding it and that uh, I love, the Britishers. Let me tell you that the Britishers uh, came back to Hungary and said that in Hungary we use the hot water bottle to enhance sex. In Britain it replaces it. It's not true. <laughs>
0: Edith! <laughs> no, that's, that is a terrible. Accusation against the sex drive of the British, which I will not go along with. That's not true
1: at all. Don't listen to (laughs)
0: it,
1: No, you are sexy, beautiful. But sexy is different from being sensuous. And sensuous means that you're beautiful, you're one of a kind. Falling in love is a chemical high that lonely people get from chocolate has nothing to do with love because it's temporary. In marriage, it's 18 months maximum. And then you wonder who's gonna take the garbage out and who's gonna pay the electric bill, and you begin to be real human beings who can live or not live together, and you have to learn to negotiate and compromise and give-and-take and and tolerating differences.
0: And you certainly did that with your marriage, where you separated and divorced even, and then find each other again once you dealt with yourself, like you, you really faced your demons, and then in some ways that freed you to love Bella again, didn't it?
1: Yes, because people ask me, did you love your husband? And I say, love? I was very skinny. I was very lonely and most of all, I was very hungry. So I married the man who bought me Hungarian salami. Why did we need to go buy
0: Hungarian salami? see. You're so funny. I never knew you were so funny. I married him because he bought me salami. That doesn't go down in the textbooks. But you see, the second time
1: I didn't, Go back to him. I was a woman to a man. When I married him the first time, I was either his mother or his child.
0: No, don't go back. And quite a broken child. It must have been a broken, hungry child,
1: yeah. Yeah, marry an adult. Become emotionally, financially independent. Become a whole person in your own right. Because the pioneer women worked alongside with her husband, and I like that pioneer woman who is becoming emotionally and financially a whole person, independent, not too independent and not too dependent either. Nothing not inde- Inter- interdependent. interdependent. Interdependent.: Interdependent.: There you go. Yeah. There you
0: go. Now you and I speak the same language. We do speak the same language. You speak it deeper and with more wisdom than me, but you're teaching me. And I feel enormously grateful that I got the chance to talk to you. I'm holding your book, The Gift, but it also feels like it's been an incredible gift to meet you on the screen. I hope I meet you in real life and to hear you and see your, I mean, you have. You are so alive at 93 you uh, honestly your spirit is as strong as as anything i've ever seen it's an you're a miracle and it is a joy to meet you and thank you so much
1: god bless
0: wow what a survivor a woman with such courage here are some of my thoughts from our conversation I think one of the sort of inspirational things I got from Edith is that the really significant things that happened in her life, I mean apart from the terrible things of the Holocaust and moving to America, marrying and having children, happened to her when she was older. And the thing I find with lots of the people that I see, my clients but also my family my friends, is our impatience that somehow life is over when you're 40. Or life, if you haven't got to where you want to be at 50, you're kind of done and dusted. And from Edith, she didn't start training as a psychologist till she was 40. She didn't start doing her PhD till she was 50. She wasn't teaching until she was 55. And she wrote her first book when she was 90 and her second book when she was 93. So, I mean, none of us know when we're going to die. But, you know, people talk about the 100-year life. So... The tendency is that we're living longer than we ever have before. But if you're panicking, you haven't got the role or the position or the life that you wanted at a particular age, that you, you know, often as a young person we kind of dream, like, by this age I need to be this place in my career, or this age I need to have a partner, or this age I need to have a family, or this age I need to have lived in five countries. We set ourselves this picture of ourselves. And I think just Turn to yourself with self-compassion and trust and kind of know that it can still happen. There's masses of years. Hopefully you'll have a long life to make all those things happen. So don't give up, keep going. That's it for this week. Thanks again to my inspirational guest, Edith Eager, my producer, Sophie King at Move Science, and to you, of course, for listening. Please continue to share the podcast with your friends and families. It means so much to me to see that these conversations are providing so much support and guidance to you all. I'll be back next week for the final episode of the series. It's gone so fast. So make sure you subscribe wherever you get your own podcasts so you don't miss out on that.